It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today begins the trial of Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer accused of murdering George Floyd, whose death sparked protests worldwide last year. Our correspondent visits the city as it prepares once again to be in the global spotlight. And the female regent honeyeater is a bird that will, well, will do it for a song. But the males of the species are increasingly unable to carry the right tune. We look into why they've lost their love song and how the species might be saved. But first... Islamist fighters have been laying siege since last week to the town of Palma in northern Mozambique, near Africa's largest ever private investment project. Over the weekend, residents and foreign workers made desperate escape attempts by land and sea. Hundreds of people have attempted to flee the town, running into forests and nearby villages. Nearly 200 civilians were sheltering inside the hotel in the town of Palma after militants surrounded the compound. A nearby natural gas project from French company Total has been forced to suspend operations. Dozens have been killed and many more still unaccounted for. Some described harrowing scenes of streets and beaches littered with decapitated bodies. This insurgency has been terrorizing the country's Cabo Delgado province since 2017. Earlier this month, America's government designated the insurgents as an arm of Islamic State. ISIS Mozambique's violent extremist insurgency has wreaked havoc in the country's Cabo Delgado province and has killed more than 1,300 civilians. ISIS Mozambique's continued attacks have caused the displacement of nearly 670,000 persons within Mozambique. This latest crisis suggests that the Mozambican government is losing its ability to combat the violence. When we last spoke about Cabo Delgado about a year ago, things were bad then, and now they're much worse. John McDermott is The Economist's chief Africa correspondent. 2020 saw more attacks by jihadist militia than in the previous two years combined. And in recent months, we've seen a slew of reports that war crimes had been committed by the militia. All told, at least 2,700 people have died since the fighting began in the province. And what is it about the province that makes it ripe for this kind of insurgency? Cabo Delgado, home to about 2.3 million people, is tucked right into the northeast corner of Mozambique. As the crow flies, it's about 2,500 kilometers away from the center of power, the capital, Maputo. Roughly the same distance that Kiev is away from London. So it looks more towards the Swahili-speaking Islamic parts of East Africa than the mostly Catholic Portuguese-speaking elites of Maputo. 
It's also something of a wild west, a haven for drug smugglers, traffickers of all kinds. And Cabo Delgado has a lot of resources, both onshore in terms of rubies and timber and the like, but also offshore. It has perhaps the largest store of liquid natural gas anywhere in Africa. The ordinary people in Cabo Delgado have been locked out of formal and these informal economic opportunities. And so the jihadists that the American government are pointing a finger at, calling an arm of ISIS, who are they? Most analysts who study the conflict in Cabo Delgado will call the rebels either Ansar al-Sunnah or al-Shabaab, which is the same name as the unrelated Somali group. The group evolved from a radical Muslim sect, angry at what they saw as a kind of established Muslim community that was too in cahoots with the Mozambican elites, the Mozambican state. That group was able to take advantage of those religious grievances, but also the economic ones that I just mentioned. Because of Cabo Delgado's location, the group has always had close links to other cells and fundamentalists up the East African coast. So we know that they've got close connections with people in DRC and Kenya, and in particular Tanzania. The question, however, is still, is it international jihadism we're talking about or a fundamentally local conflict? In my opinion, the answer is probably both. How do you mean? When I was in Cabo Delgado about a year ago, no one was really talking about seeing the black flag of ISIS when attacks happened or hearing people speak in Arabic. Yet clearly there are some links. There have been mutual pledges of affiliation between the Mozambican group and what is known as ISIS core in the Middle East. There may also be some personnel exchange and there may also be some financing links. The US is not going into too much detail about what it knows. And we do know that the links between an organization like ISIS core and its franchises is not a command and control one. It is more about taking the brand and therefore having the recruiting advantages that you might gain from being part of the ISIS affiliation. So how does America's designating these jihadists as part of ISIS change the calculus here? How, how does that affect things? The designation won't have much of an effect unless you're dealing with the group. If you fund or work with these groups, then you cross US law. But the designation reflects a sense in which the rest of the world is increasingly concerned about what is happening in Cabo Delgado and wants to offer at least some help to the Mozambican government that seems out of its depth. As well as the designation, America has agreed to train some Mozambican troops. France and Portugal, as well as the broader EU, has offered assistance with training and some intelligence. South Africa says it stands ready to help with naval operations off the coast. And various mercenary firms smelling the opportunity of lucre here are also circling the government. But what has the government actually done here? The violence over the past few days seems to suggest they, they don't have a handle on the situation. When the conflict first began, President Felipe Nusi dismissed the insurgents as bandits and was very slow to mount a security response. But in November, Mozambique and Tanzania signed a deal to stop the flow of fighters across their border. And Mr. Nusi has also tried to wrestle control of the conflict away from the police and give it to the army, with which he has closer links. In January, he appointed a new army chief, 
but even then things have gone slightly awry because that guy died a month later of COVID. And even while President Nusi has been trying to do a bit more, he's had to deal with quite serious allegations from Amnesty International and others about what his government has been doing. The rights group has said that the army and the police have been involved in extrajudicial killings and torture. On top of that, Amnesty says that the South African mercenaries hired by Mozambique have been throwing hand grenades and firing indiscriminately into crowds of people. So taken all together, what's your view? How will this all progress then? The the will seems to be there, at least on, on one side of this conflict. While Maputo seems to want help, or at least it seems to want guns and money and training, it has been rather tentative in how it has approached the rest of the world. It has pressed the Bishop of Pemba, an incredible humanitarian voice in the province, to leave the country. It has expelled a British journalist, Tom Bowker, who's doing some of the best work exposing what goes on in Cabo Delgado. The government has denied visas to UN staff. All of these things add up to a government that is worried about what would happen if outsiders see too much of the reality of Cabo Delgado. And that attitude is not something that any designation can change. Thank you very much for joining us, John. Thank you, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin starts today, 10 months after the death of George Floyd. Mr. Chauvin was seen to press his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes. The killing, filmed by a passerby, sparked global protests. Yesterday, family and friends of Mr. Floyd gathered for a church vigil, where the civil rights leader, the Reverend Al Sharpton, was among those to preach. The criminal justice system is on trial tomorrow. Chauvin is in the courtroom, but America's on trial. It's rare for police officers to face trial for killing someone, and when they do, the trials often end without a conviction. For these proceedings, extra care has been taken to ensure a fair jury, which has ended up half-white and half-black or mixed race. Last year, Mr. Floyd's death was the focal point of a global movement toward racial justice. The trial that begins today may reignite that same spirit. The atmosphere in Minneapolis is one of people being very aware that something huge is about to happen again. Adam Roberts is The Economist's Midwest correspondent. You chat to people who are out and about. They want to talk about reconciliation. They want to talk about how to get over the division and the protest that followed the killing of George Floyd last year. But they also want to see the trial do justice. As you drive around, you can see the National Guard is protecting the courthouse. There are high fences and concrete barriers around it. 
over at the George Floyd Memorial, there are murals and flowers out and people gardening and, and people who come to the memorial and walk around it and study it. Clearly everybody is aware that this trial is about to begin and they know that the world is again going to be paying very close attention. And, and how have the, the preparations for the trial been going? Well, you can imagine it's a very difficult trial to get right. The huge attention that's going to be paid to this from within the United States and from elsewhere, both the defence and the prosecution have fought very hard when it comes to jury selection to make sure that they can exclude anyone who was potentially on the jury who they thought would be biased in some way. The court has been very concerned to be seen to get the jury selection right. Do you swear or affirm under penalty of perjury that... Uh, you will truthfully answer all questions about your qualifications to serve as a juror. I will. All right, thank you. Potential jurors were asked how many times they'd watched the infamous video, and they were asked for their views on police. And do you have a general perception of police in general? I think there's good and bad, you know. There's some people who abuse their authority, and there's some people who, you know, use their authority for the better, and and their views of the Black Lives Matter movement. When you look at the phrase Black Lives Matter, um, yes, they do matter, and I don't know why anyone would be against that movement. And what about Mr. Floyd's family? Have we heard from them ahead of the trial? Well, the trial was complicated a few days into the jury selection when the Minneapolis City Council announced that it had agreed to make a payment, a $27 million settlement with Mr. Floyd's family. The case was led by their attorney, Benjamin Crump. In this historic agreement, the largest pre-trial settlement in a police civil rights wrong-for-death case in U.S. history makes a statement that George Floyd deserved better than what we witnessed on May 25, 2020. Members of his family have been speaking this month ahead of the trial. Some have expressed their hopes and their demands that justice will be served. Others, like his sister Bridget, have been mostly remembering their, their brother George. The officer took a great man, a great brother, a great uncle, and a great father. He really took a great father. He was so family-oriented. And we would never get that back. And what about the progression of the case itself? What do we know about the arguments that are going to be put forth? So, earlier this month, the judge, Peter Cahill, granted a request by prosecutors to reinstate a charge of third-degree murder against Derek Chauvin, charged already with second-degree murder and manslaughter. I think that's important because until that had happened, there was speculation that there might be some sort of plea deal that would be struck the defence lawyers seem to think that they would be able to negotiate a plea deal. And bringing in this third charge has made it necessary to actually go to trial. So I think we will need to watch which of these three charges is the most likely to come through to be successfully prosecuted. And what about the defence's case? It may be that the defence will, will take a line to argue that Mr Floyd died not because he had his neck kneeled on, but because he had opioids in his blood. And... The toxicology report that was released after his autopsy did suggest that there was a fairly high level of opioid in his blood. Of course, the prosecution make the case that the death would not have happened had the policeman not been kneeling on his neck. And so that's, I think, where the nub of the case will come down to. If convicted, 
Mr Chauvin would face a sentence of potentially 25 years in prison. I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of, of cases like this before, and they often end in a little more than, than disciplinary action for the officers involved. Do you, do you think this one will be any different? Well, this case is already remarkable because it has come to trial. There are so many examples across U.S. cities of police officers being involved in fatal shootings or otherwise killing suspects, and it never reaches a court case. Even when it does reach the court, it's really very rare for police officers to be convicted of murder. It happened in Chicago a couple of years ago for the first time in 40 years. You can't overestimate how significant it is that people are actually being brought to court in greater numbers now than they ever were before. There is the risk that if he's then acquitted, there could be widespread anger. We saw a lot of people out on the streets last year because they were absolutely infuriated and shocked by what they saw in the video. And we will be pouring over the details of that video in the forthcoming trial. And I think there's a real chance that there'll be renewed rage and renewed disgust of what was seen there. Thanks very much for joining us, Adam. Thank you, Jason. Songs don't work if you sing out of tune. And if you don't learn how to sing properly in the first place, out of tune is how you're likely to sing. For humans, that can be embarrassing. For Regent Honeyeaters, a species of Australian bird, it may prove far worse than that. The male Regent Honeyeaters have been struggling to learn the song that they need to attract females. Claire Oliver-Williams writes about science for The Economist. These birds are already on the verge of extinction, and this might just push them over the edge. What do you mean by that? So the Regent Honeyeaters, there used to be thousands of them in Australia, but the numbers have now declined to less than 400 because their habitats have just been destroyed over time. And if they're going to survive, then they need to breed. In order to do that, the male has to sing complex songs that will attract the female. But this is happening less and less frequently. So what is it that's going wrong with the male's songs? So for the males to learn their songs, they have to be around adult males when they're growing up, in the first year of life specifically. But as the populations have got smaller and smaller, they're struggling to find sufficient male adult tutors to learn songs from. So the researchers of the Australian National University in Canberra spent four years out in southeast Australia recording 146 Regent Honeyeaters. They then went on to compare these songs that they recorded to historical recordings of 14 males. What they found when they compared these two groups of songs is that the songs of the modern birds, they're much less complex, they're shorter and they have fewer syllables. And this is a problem that's common to all of the region honey eaters that are left? Broadly, yes, they're not as high quality songs as they used to be, but it gets even worse when you dig further into it. So about a quarter of the males that the researchers recorded, they sing songs that were really different from the standard Regent Honeyeater songs. But worst of all, about one in eight male Regent Honeyeaters, they didn't sing any of the right songs. So it wasn't just they were off-key or anything like that. It's just they were singing other birds' songs. 
They found some Regent honey eaters that were singing the songs of the noisy fryer bird or the little wattle bird or the black-faced cuckoo shrike. And so when these birds are singing these songs, they're utterly unintelligible to their fellow Regent honey eaters. So having identified the problem, what's to be done? The only way out of this vicious cycle is to increase the population of these birds. One option, which has been proposed by the Australian government, is a captive breeding program. But the researchers that also looked at the wild birds have looked at captive-bred regent honey eaters as well. And they suffer from the same problem. If they're bred in captivity, then they aren't exposed to the songs of the regent honey eaters And therefore, they don't learn the right songs to attract females when they're out in the wild. So they're going to have to find a way around this. And one option that they're currently exploring is to give tutoring to these birds, to have like an electronic vocal tutor to teach them how to sing the right songs. And has this sort of thing ever been done successfully? One way that it has been done previously with other birds is... The birds can have the songs just played to them spontaneously, or there may be like a little key in the birdcage they're in that they can peck, and that will play the song for them so they have some control. And it's even possible to kind of have some vague semblance of normalcy where the speaker is hidden in like a little plastic male adult bird. So it's coming from a slightly more normal looking place. And the hope is that this will help these captive bred birds to learn the songs. And it's worked with previous birds. For example, the spotted ant bird has been shown to be able to learn the right kinds of songs in captivity. So there is some hope, but if it doesn't work, the future of the Regent Honey Eater looks pretty grim, unfortunately. Claire, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.